Thank you, Aaron and Kayla. And uh, William, thank you for your reminder of, uh, of grace and the simple, profound, life-changing message, there you are, of grace. Uh, let's, let's pray as we begin. Father, we pray that we would remember again your message of grace and mercy, and not just remember it, but that we would receive it, that we would live it, that we would be transformed by it. And we pray this through Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you already know this, but those of you who don't know, today is the big day where college basketball lets teams know who's in and who's out of the big tournament. March Madness. This is the day when the word comes down. And there were all kinds of people who eagerly await this time of year or get into this tournament, even if they're not big basketball fans, even if the team that they follow, that they root for, isn't in the tournament. Now, that's, that one's easy. But there are also people that start to watch at least parts of the games this time of year because they're very interested in the David and Goliath stories that happen, right? They love to see the small, no-name schools take down the big behemoths. In fact, last year, my tiny little West Texas alma mater went up against the big, bad University of Texas and ridiculously, amazingly won that game. And what's interesting about that is I think more of my friends here in Arkansas who are Arkansas fans were more excited about my alma mater taking down Texas than I was. Because people love to see Goliath go down, especially when Goliath is UT. People love to hate UT and certain institutions. But people also this time of year, and maybe you're one of these folks, and I'm one of these folks, I, I don't take Thursday and Friday off of the tournament like some people do, but I am one of those that when I see a game is coming down to the final moments, the last minutes, and especially when it is the last second, then I tune in. And a lot of people tune in. And that is one of the things that people love the most about sports. And it's not just basketball, although you get a lot of those stacking up this time of year during the tournament. But they love the buzzer beater in basketball, right? And people love the walk-off home run in baseball. And they love the overtime, extra time goal in, soccer, in soccer or hockey or the brand new game I just invented, Saki. They love that. I don't know all the rules, but let's, let's get our heads together. Let's figure that out. Okay, now in football, those of you who like football, you know 
that there are a couple of ways that a game can end at the last second. And, and people like the last second field goal, but they love the last second touchdown. And in football, if the throw is long enough, and it is last second, say your team has only made it to about midfield, then we've got a special name for that play. When you've got half the field to throw the ball and time is going to expire and all the receivers run to the end zone or as close to the end zone as they can get and the quarterback throws it as far as they can to the end zone if they can and then there is just a mad scrum of humanity going for the ball and we've got a special name for that play. What do we call that play? A Hail Mary. So I've got two things about my upbringing that especially tie to that story. And one is this. I grew up a Cowboys fan all my life. And the second is this. I grew up in a church of Christ. So I only knew that description, that name, as a football term. Until I was about 20 years old. I only knew that as a football term. Now I bring in the Cowboys fan because when I was three years old, I don't remember it from when I was three, but I've heard about it and seen it plenty of times since. In 1975, a game, the Cowboys against the Vikings, it came to the last play of the game, and the Cowboys were about at midfield, and the great Roger Staubach goes back and he throws it as far as he can near the end zone, not quite to the end zone, and Drew Pearson catches it, and Viking fans to this day will say he pushed off. It wasn't fair, but he caught it, went into the end zone, touchdown, they win the game, it's in the playoffs, they advance. And after the game, Roger Staubach, who grew up a good Catholic, was asked about the play, and he said, I closed my eyes and said a Hail Mary. And newspaper headlines the next day says, Roger Staubach throws a Hail Mary. But he didn't say he threw it. He said it. And it was only later in my life when I realized, oh, what he's saying is he closed his eyes. Yes, he threw the ball, but he also threw up a prayer. That's all he had is what he's saying. He threw up a prayer. This was a time, last second, no time left, where all he could do was throw up a prayer. Last week, we started a discussion looking at some of the short sayings of Jesus from the cross. There are seven of those. And last week, we came to the passage, which you heard again this morning, where Jesus is on the cross, and he's between two criminals, and the crowd has called for his crucifixion, and the soldiers are mocking and religious leaders are mocking. And as we'll hear again in a minute, one of, one of the criminals is mocking. And 
His disciples have fled. And in the middle of that time, Jesus prays this mind-blowing prayer, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But we come just a little later to another saying of Jesus on the cross, and we heard this also from Aaron and Kayla as they read for us this morning. But let's back up just a moment. So Jesus is led to the place of his crucifixion between two criminals, and then he is on the cross between two criminals. And one of them decides to join in with everyone else. And if you didn't know the way he says it, you might think it's sincere, but he is sarcastic when he says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Which to me kind of begs the question, who does this guy think he is? Is this just a little bit of gallows humor? Is he trying to win a little bit of favor with the crowd or maybe with the soldiers? Maybe that they'll give just a little bit of leniency while he's there? Is he just distracting himself from what's going on? Or is he just a jerk, even to his dying breath? Like, once a jerk, always a jerk, even now. He's just going along with what everyone else is doing. It is the other criminal that's always captivated our attention. Because everyone is piling on except for this one in verse 40. The other criminal rebukes the first criminal. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? Does he have this epiphany? A moment of clarity? Is this for him like a deathbed confession? I've sat at some beds with some people who know the end is near. And sometimes it is the time to open up the closet and the things that they've been hiding and denying, they pull out and admit to and confess for the first time. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he asks, he makes a request, although for what exactly, I'm not sure. At least I'm not sure what he thinks he's asking for. A favor, mercy, grace. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the reason I say I don't know for sure what he thinks he's asking for is because I'm not convinced he has a clue what he means or what he's alluding to when he talks about Jesus' kingdom. We sometimes struggle to know what it means when Jesus talks about his kingdom. 
But we've got a better idea. Sometimes we make it only about what happens when the world ends. And Jesus comes to make things new and judge the living and the dead. When Jesus, in fact, talks about his kingdom as not just kingdom come, but kingdom here, breaking out God's rule and reign, happening even now and ushered in in a new way, his resurrection. I'm not convinced this guy understands any of that. And part of the reason I say that is because Jesus' disciples who walk with Jesus, who talk with Jesus, who Jesus warns on multiple occasions, hey, this is coming. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. They don't even get it. They don't understand. Every time Jesus tries to explain it to them, they're confused. They don't know what Jesus is talking about. So I'm definitely not convinced this guy has a clue what he's asking for. Which is an interesting insight into grace, if you ask me. Because grace does not ultimately depend on what you know or how well you know what you know. Sometimes we like to make it that We like to make it a checklist of knowledge and understanding. And certainly, knowledge and understanding to the best of our ability is good. But ultimately, grace is not about what you know and how much you know. Grace is about the giver. And grace does not depend on the quality of the individual who needs it. We know exactly one thing about this guy before he opens his mouth. What do we know? He's a criminal. That's all we know. We know one thing on his resume. He is a criminal. Matthew and Mark, they use a word that means he's a robber. But Luke uses a word that kind of amps up the intensity a little bit. That gets closer to what we learn about Barabbas a little earlier. Criminal, probably an insurrectionist. One of these violent nationalists that would do everything they could to disrupt what was happening for their Roman overlords and rulers. Even murder. Especially murder. But when the guy talks, we know in the end that this horrible, horrific punishment he's receiving, he sees as justified. It's just. I'm getting the other criminal. You're getting what you had coming. And grace does not depend on what we can do and what we can offer either before or after we receive it. So I'm going to say something ridiculously, painfully obvious. This guy is on the cross. You're like, yeah, 
we lost an hour of sleep, but we can follow that. We, we get that. We know where he is. But I want you to think about what that means. What could this guy give before he makes the request? Or what could he do after he makes the request? So we've got a few folks in here who have medical training, and we have some folks who have uh, training in psychology, and we have some folks like me, and I'm not sure if Bryce is in, but have some training in theology. And, and those who have had some of those training, and some of you may have been exposed to this also, but you may have come across the name of a woman who was a researcher. Her name is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she spent her time studying people who were dying. And in the process of studying, she identified certain parts of grief which most people go through. And so she published those. And that has been popularized for, I don't know, 40 years or so now. Which she identifies the five stages of grief. And after you get past anger, and denial, the middle stage is bargaining. Right? Things don't look good, but maybe there is some sort of bargain I can make. And we see this all the time on movies and TV shows, the bargaining phase. Someone is dying, the situation is crumbling, maybe a business is failing, and so the character prays, and the prayer is an attempt to bargain, to strike a deal with the divine. And it's usually kind of generic, and it sounds a little something, something like this. And tell me if you've heard this in a TV show or movie in the past. Lord, I know I haven't talked with you in a while. The truth is, I don't know the last time I talked with you. Lord, I don't know if you're listening. I'm not even sure sometimes if you're there. But if you would see to it to answer this prayer, then I will fill in the blank. You heard that one in movies? TV shows, and you fill in the blank with something like this. Then I will be a better spouse. Then I will be a better parent. Then I will be more aware of the plight of others. Then I will buy that giant bird in the window, and I'll take it to the family of Tiny Tim, and they'll have a great Christmas, and God will bless us, everyone. That's the bargaining stage. Perhaps some of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Came out almost 25 years ago now. Private James Ryan, played by Matt Damon, in the movie is one of four brothers, and they're serving in World War II. And on the same day, the mother of these boys learns that three of the four brothers have died. And the government decides, whoever the higher-ups are, they decide that 
they are going to do whatever is within their power to make sure that that final son does not die. And so they send a group, a band of eight, to go and find and rescue Private Ryan at all costs. And they are led by Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks. And so they've got to uh, storm the beach at Normandy, and it is bloody, and it is brutal, and this is an adult movie if you haven't seen it, so I'm just warning you because it's, it's a story about war, and it is brutal. And then they make it finally uh, into France, and now they've got to work their way through Nazi-controlled territory all the time. They're just trying to find this one person, and by the time they find, spoiler alert, it's been out 24 years, but by the time they find Private Ryan. Six of the eight people that set out to save him die. And Tom Hanks' character is fatally wounded. And as he is drawing his last breath, he pulls private Ryan in closer and he says two short sentences that are haunting earn this earn it I mean I know I cry easily anyway but that scene it's gut-wrenching and the tears flow and you can tell from that moment that is that is such a blessing and it is such a burden and it weighs on him and then the movie which had started with Ryan as an old man at a cemetery probably Arlington National Cemetery just rows and rows of white crosses is taken back to that time. Now he is an old man and he is at that cemetery and he is looking at the headstone, that cross for that man representing all the others that had given his life. And he falls on his knees and he weeps and then his wife comes over. And as she is near, he looks at her and he pleads, Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And you can tell again what a blessing this sacrifice was. But what a burden those words were as well. It empowering, haunting, the survivor's guilt, the obligation, and the honor. It is an amazing gift. And yet, I would tell you, as beautiful as that scene is and as that sentiment is, that's not the story of grace. It never has been and it never will be. That, in the end, is a costly loan. 
one that in one way or another is expected to be paid back. It is a huge sum to be paid back over time. It is beautiful what they did, but that's not grace. Grace is a gift that is received. It is not earned. It's not earned on the front end, and it's not paid back on the back end. Paul describes it this way in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not because you're good enough on the front end. And it's not even with the best of intentions that you will eventually get to be good enough on the back end. That you can slowly, over time, like a 30-year mortgage, it's going to take a long time, but I'm going to pay this thing back a little bit every month. That's not grace. Think back to the criminal for a moment. What could he bargain on the front end? What could he earn? What could he pay back? What could he offer? Could he say, you know, Jesus, if I ever get out of this, I'm going to be the husband I never was before. I'm going to be the father I always intended to be. I'm going to be the best citizen this region has ever had. He had nothing to give, not on the front end, not on the back end. All he had was a last-second full-court heave. All he had was a final moment throw to the end zone. In fact, he didn't even have that because those apply that if he got lucky enough, he could pull it out on his own, but he couldn't do anything on his own. All he had was a simple request, a prayer. And that's all he needed. Because grace has never been about the person who needs it. It's, it's about the giver. Grace is the story of Jesus. Grace is the message of God. It's not ultimately us. What we do on the front end. What we can give on the back end. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I know what some might think about this kind of message. Isn't that a dangerous message? William reminded us that grace is simple, but doesn't that make grace kind of cheap? Couldn't people take advantage of that? Because most of us aren't on our final breath, and we weren't that moment when we gave our life in baptism. We weren't on our final breath, just this symbol of dying and then rising to something new. Isn't that a little dangerous if grace is that encompassing? Shouldn't we commit 
to live the good life. Tell me at the end, I was a good man, a good woman. Shouldn't we do all we can to live it? To which I would say, yes, absolutely live the best life you possibly can. Embrace grace to the fullest. But Paul says that's where we misunderstand grace in the first place. And he spends a whole chapter talking about this in Romans 6. If we really understand grace, then it's never just been about what happens in some cosmic transaction when we die. Grace is embracing the grace of God every day of our life. If we understand grace, then new life is also grace. It is a gift to be received, not earned. And if we understand grace, then transformed life is also grace. It is a gift to be received, not earned. And a world remade with us joining in the work of renovation. That is grace. Don't we all long for the grace of a world remade as we look into our world right now? That is a gift to be received and opened up to. But it is not earned. It is through the power of God. Jesus says to this man who has nothing to offer, not on the front end, not on the back end. Today, you will be with me in paradise. But the optimum word for us as we wait the great someday, the optimum description is this. With me. Today, you will be with me. That doesn't wait until the end. Today, you will walk with me. Today, you can experience life to the full. Life as it was always designed with me. Today, you can live in new power with me. Today, you can live for new purposes with me. Today, you can join in lives remade and families remade and marriages remade and a world remade with me. We've got a word for that. Gift. Grace. Today. And every day. Open yourself. To receive it.